traditional Actually, just had an exit yesterday. It was announced in Bodevoca. It was bought by Pernod Ricard from France. Oh, well done. And I need to leave to negotiate another exit in this month. So, Well done. So we need to talk about it. Yeah. Perfect. It seems that we are going live. Let's wait another tech, 10 seconds to for all the community team to come in. How many people are connecting? So usually we have 5K views average per uh, episode. And but a lot of people see the show after um, it after it goes live. And yeah, officially we are live. So welcome to the Scale Up Valley. Um, welcome to, to the, the Scale, Scale Up Valley podcast. As we know, we compress key lessons about scaling up companies from 1 million to 100 million uh, US dollars in annual recurring revenue. That's our first show uh, with an investor. So we have been having CEO interviews, also discussing scaling up on a product perspective, on engineering, marketing, sales, customer success, with some of the best tech leaders uh, in the world joining us from San Francisco, New York, Madrid, Barcelona, London, Berlin, Singapore, etc. And uh, we thought it would be very important to also have the investor perspective in the process of scaling up uh, companies. And today with us, we have Gonzalo uh, Tradesete, managing partner at Faraday. And it's a really a pleasure to have you as our first guest uh, representing the investment community. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. So yeah, let's let's move forward and get a little bit to, to get to know more uh, about yourself. And so how did you went becoming or starting up uh, Faraday. So what, what were you doing before? Uh, before Faraday, I was uh, um, at KPMG, Marius and Acquisitions, financial sector. Before that, I was in a hedge fund. So I've been quite an investment uh, finance analyst for most of my professional career. But also since a very young age, I, I was in love with the entrepreneurship spirit. And I started from the age of 13, making my own uh, little businesses or uh, business initiatives, really, you, you cannot really constitute a company when you're 13. Got it. <laughs> but you can wash cars and make tortilla de patatas. So obviously <laughs> there was some uh, room there for professionalization and everything. So I chose my uh, profession to try to uh, uh, get the, f the best tools to be able to, uh, to uh, build my own company with the best guarantees. At the end of the day, my experience was built into the investment finance field. And since I was in love with uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and what kind of value it can bring to society, I decided to put up an investment club in Spain in 2011, which is called Faraday Venture Partners, mm -hmm. and which was the most similar figure to a pledge fund by which our members, the investors, can choose the amount they want to invest in each of the opportunities we offer them. But... If they invest, we really work for the success of that startup. We just we, we're not just in the transaction or like a crowdfunding platform or an M&A advisor, but we uh, transform ourselves into a VC partner to try to help uh, to the success, commercial particular success of the companies that our members invest. So it's a hybrid between a business engine network and a venture capital fund, really. 
So it's a weird animal that ties to give the flexibility and the knowledge to the investor to be able to uh, interact with the CEOs they invest in and to help them commercially in particular, but who, who are protected by investment professionals who are on a day-to-day -day basis following up their investments. So that was the idea of Faraday. At the moment, it's the biggest private investor club in Spain. And we're now opening new clubs in Portugal and Germany this year. Well done. And the, the business model is uh, fascinating and I think it's quite innovative and being innovative in the, uh, in the, in the VC space is, is not easy. So congrats and kudos to you, you for having this vision and congrats also for expanding already your footprint in, in Portugal and, and Germany. And again, I think that your investment thesis is also very innovative. So uh, if you can talk a little bit more about it, what, what is the investment thesis today of, um, of the VC part? Well, I cannot talk for every VC because what I see uh, in uh, most VCs, actually I was two weeks ago seeing uh, 15 pitches from VCs uh, trying to raise funds for their LPs, you know, from new uh, right. investors. And 13 out of 15 said they were deep tech, for example. Right. You know, that was their focus and whatever. So uh, it's fine. But uh, we've always had a contrarian approach. Basically, we love what is off-circuit. We've invested in circuit companies, companies that are, for example, now using blockchain, but for a particular purpose, not because of the fashionable aspect of the circuit. So we avoid, we try to avoid the hottest sector and we try to look at every single startup or company from a bottom-up approach. So basically we see their numbers, their recurrency, their uh, return, their churn, their, uh, um, their customers' feedback. We call the clients in particular if they're B2B. If not, if, not, if they're B2C, we do a lot of mystery shopping, for example, for the commercial due diligence. But we can invest in absolutely anything that has at least six months. That's our filtering criteria that allows us to invest at least 150,000 euros. We can invest 700, 800,000 in a first ticket, but we are happy to enter at uh, an early stage, early commercial stage. For us, it's very important since we're not specialists in any sector that they have some clients and we can talk to them. We can see their commercial numbers. So uh, our approach is totally sector agnostic, uh, very um, bottom-up approach and very based on numbers for the filtering part. Obviously, we make meetings with the uh, promoters, CEO, CTO, etc., and try to, to check whether they have the right motivations, ambitions, etc. But all this is much more subjective. Got it. Got it. And um, in terms of some of your, you, you were just before we go um, live, you were sharing uh, good news about some exits that you had. So what were the most successful investments that Faraday has done uh, so far? I think the most successful in terms of uh, a multiple was uh, Abitissimo, which was our first investment. We sold it in early 2017. Uh, it's a bit kind of five years more or less. And we had a 10.7 times uh, multiple, which was wow. very good. But in terms of IRR, we have, we've had higher uh, because we've sometimes exited at twice in less than a year. 
So uh, the IRR was over 100%. So that, that was very good as well, even if the multiple was not that high. Uh, it was just twice, but in a very little period. And now we're negotiating. Uh, yesterday we had another exit. Uh, the multiple for the first enter was four times, which was good. Uh, it's not as profitable as others, but it was a very nice acquire and a very nice, very well-managed company uh, according to scale-up criteria. Got it. Um, um, by Pernod Ricard, who bought the company yesterday, bought the book. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And we're now negotiating another exit, and we are quite proud of that one because it's the own founders who are wanting to uh, to uh, buy us back and wow. uh, not sell the company, but become a big, big company. Because you know that in this VC industry, because of right. regulation and many other factors, we're nearly forced to sell the companies. Uh, Got it. When we have VC investors, or because they have eight plus two years to sell, so the in dividend terms, you never get it. But okay. it's difficult when you have to sell the companies in less than 10, 15 years' time to build the European champions. With, Absolutely. With, with the American and Asian tech giants. Yeah? So we're very happy when, uh, when entrepreneurs get strong and say, I don't want to sell my company, I want to buy other companies. Right, so to go for the long run. We're quite proud of that kind of attitude. Even with that, we're going to be selling it at, at least 10 times our entry valuation with just one entry. That's a shame. But in less than three years, which is, which is very good. Okay. It's an even bigger IRR than the Navitissimo and on the other two okay. times than a year. Got it. And uh, how many investments or portfolio companies do you, do you, have you made so far since the beginning of um, Faraday? We've invested in 24 companies and we're investing in four new companies this month of July. Mm -hmm. Our first Portuguese investment as well. Congratulations. We're very excited. Is it public already? Sorry? Is it public? public yet. Probably in a okay. week or so we'll be able to tell it. Got it. So I'm very curious. <laughs> no. And, uh, and uh, two exits in the month, which is very good as well. So 24 plus four companies, we've already sold two. So that's 28 minus two, 26 minus four, which went bankrupt. It's, we still have 22 in the portfolio. Got it. Well done. Um, yes, Odd, I wanted to ask you also, what, what kind of factors or um, things that turn you on an in investment when you are talking with potential uh, investment opportunities or teams what turns you on and what turns you off is there any kind of criteria like team or total addressable market or the modes is there anything in particular that really gets you excited about investment opportunity and something that you say yeah i, I don't want to talk more uh, i'm not interested it's this is not for us um the only thing that really can tell us not to talk more is the attitude of the person you have in front of you Team. So a very negative attitude or belligerent or stuff, uh, we don't like that. We do this because we really believe in the value we can provide, not only to the companies we invest, but the companies we invest into society as wealth creators, and we really believe in that. Uh, if it's to be angry at each other at each board meeting and stuff, it's, it's not going to be worth it. Uh, and it's probably not going to create a value. Got it. 
So that's the thing that puts us away, the wrong or bad or, you know, really uh, aggressive attitude from the, the, the promoters of the company. The things that uh, turns us on, um, there's many, obviously. And obviously the relationship is with the person or persons in the company, but uh, on a more pragmatic way, for example, for, for, for me, I don't know if we call it recurrency, uh, basically clients coming back and buying back again. Yeah. So the recurrency of clients, <coughs> and there's many, very, very many different ways of measuring that. For us is the best proxy of the love that the company and the founders of that company tried to give to their clients. Got it. So uh, we take a look at recurrency in many ways. And we call, as I told you, the clients, or we uh, we call our own members and we pay them, if it's a B2C company, the particular lunch or dress or whatever for them to experience the, the customer experience. And we focus very much in this love the companies we invest provide to their own clients and how do they feel about it. And for us, it's the best proxy of... Uh, of their future commercial success. Yeah. You get into a lot of metrics, of, for example, of uh, um, customer acquisition channel dependency. Even if you give a lot of love, if 80% of your sales come through Google uh, uh, channels, uh, yeah. online channels for acquiring customers, well, you have still a strong dependency on a particular channel and it could be very dangerous for your company. But uh, the most important factor for me, that's a personal thing, currency. Margins are also a very good proxy of the value added you give to your clients. Mm -hmm. It's a very big pain for them. They are, have a higher disposable income to pay you, a bigger share of wallet, because it's an important problem you solve for them. So we, we love important problems and very happy clients. Got it. This is this is amazing, and I I love this recurrency as a proxy of uh, customer, oh, yeah. so uh, or customer successes as well. And um, usually, we in 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 the tech community, we always talk and we always have stories of startups that are kind of trying to conquer or inspire or influence or convince an investor, a very good investor, to invest in them. But we see that really the world-class teams, the world-class companies, the ones that show all the criteria that you are looking for also can have the opposites. So having investors wanting to really get in and work with that team and work on that opportunity. Do you have any story in your portfolio, in your investments career where, where you had this, that you could share a little bit uh, the effort that you need to take, that you need to make to, in order to be part uh, of the journey of that company? Um. Each company, it's a world in itself. So, uh, it. for example, uh, there's companies which uh, we try to help because they don't have any financiers and they don't really know how to calculate their uh, um, treasury projections, for example, which is a very important thing because when you do not have a lot of cash, a bad prediction of your treasury could make you go bust. It's not okay. what is going to make you fly. The make you fly is the product, the channels, the commercialization formula, everything. But it's what makes you go bust because you didn't predict a big pay that you had to make. And 
So sometimes it's a very limited technical and financial terms uh, help. Sometimes uh, people get divorced, they get uh, angry at each other between co-founders and stuff like that. And it's much more emotional uh, part of our work. But uh, since you've been there and you have an interest in the company and everything, they call you. If they believe you're someone who is able to listen to other kind of problems. And sometimes we have to mediate between co-founders. Sometimes it's the contrary. A co-founder may be very, very uh, happy or overly positive about possible outcomes. And uh, we need to bring him back to, to, the, to Earth because there are dangers that his very positive attitude is not seen. is avoiding him to see. And therefore, what we do is uh, be careful because if this is not right, plan B is that you don't even have the money to pay the indemnization for uh, uh, firing your workers and you won't have money to pay them and you will have been a, be a big trouble with the authorities and you could be in jail for that. And many first-time entrepreneurs do not know all these possible legal complications. So sometimes we need to be kind of the bad guy in the board of directors putting in the table the dangers, their personal dangers, actually. So I think that this uh, emotion regulations, because you're not in the day-to-day -day of the business, but you understand the business and you have a stake in the business and an interest, um, can be a, a lot of help for some companies. Got it. And Coming back a little bit and, and just giving some context for the listeners who are tuning in for the first time in, in the show. So there are the Rockefeller habits, which are 10 Rockefeller habits, which were invented by John Rockefeller, one of the most successful businessmen in the history of the United States. And it's, it's all about creating discipline in terms of thinking about the business, executing, ensuring that we have the right people on the right seats, um, the, the, the right pace of execution, the, as Gonzalo was saying, also the appropriate cash uh, flow in the business to help you grow. And the first Rockefeller habit, it's all about having a healthy and aligned um, team. And of course, in, in the scaling up stage of the business, uh, these teams, and just to give you an idea, if we are at 1 million ARR or at 5 million ARR, and jumping to 10 million ARR in a year, uh, the ad count is completely different and the challenges of the business are completely different. So and as a manager, as a leader, uh, you might not be the best fit for the next four quarters of the business and you were the right fit for the previous two or three or four quarters. So things change too fast and we need always to, to, to think about what is the leadership team 1.0, what is the leadership team 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 and ahead um, of time. And some of them will grow to become the 2.0 and the 3.0 and some of them will prefer to just leave the company and join another one to go again from the 1 million to 5 million or from the 5 million to 10 million or from the 10 to, to 20 million. So and this is usually very difficult because sometimes founders uh, wait two or three quarters and then um, achieving the results or the metrics or the targets become very complicated. And <coughs> it's impossible to recover the time. I think that's one of the most difficult mindset shifts, and sorry for speaking so long now, is uh, on, on the seed stage or even in, in early series A, 
we have a product market fit mindset. And in the scaling up stage, we need that the most precious asset is not anymore um, the cash that keeps you alive to, to, to keep testing new things, but the time to become the category leader. And which means that cash is not so important at that stage, it's much more important time in terms of execution and time to market. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that this is one of the issues that you face a lot um, uh, of the times and it's very difficult for a founder to recognize that that person that helped them so much in a certain moment of, of the company that maybe the company is, what is even going bust and they have been there, help it to let him know that maybe it's not the right person for the next challenge. So uh, how do you face this? Uh, and how do you think ab about this? Do you agree, by the way, with what I just described? We try to invest, because we invest in early stage, sometimes with six, nine months of sales, yeah, in people that have two characteristics, but it's very subjective. First, that are good listeners, that take advice, but obviously it's much easier to appear like someone that is a good listener when you are asking for money than when you already have it and you don't need it anymore. So people sometimes are bad listeners, but very good actors. Got it. <laughs> good point. I'm not talking about entrepreneurs. I'm talking about investors. I'm talking about people. People, absolutely. Yeah? And the second characteristic we care about is, since we know that we try to have good listeners, but we may not have them, I don't know, I, we will see that forward, is that um, that are able to manage a 10, 20 or 100 million uh, euro revenue company. That we believe that they will still, maybe not the best, but a very right manager for a much bigger business with 100, 200, 500 employees. Because we know it's their baby. You know, Faraday is my baby. Okay. And it's very difficult to leave your baby on its own. And in particular, when someone tells you that you do not have the skills to keep growing your baby, he's not an adult yet, but you are not the best father anymore. So many people, I think, and I see, let's say, I will learn. I can learn to manage a big business. I've learned to make a business before I didn't make any. So now I'm going to learn, but I'm going to stay. And I'm no one to tell him, you're out. Got it. I'm a minority shareholder. So if he's a good listener, which entails being humble, yeah, he will recognize that he may not be the best and put someone inside, in his place, or at a chief operating officer level or whatever. But you never can really know it before the time comes. What you try to do as an investor is try to call other investors in other startups he may have had, if he has had some, or if not, ex-employers. You try to see what they think about their attitude and about having people on top of him and stuff like that. So we try to make a couple of checks outside of the conversation we have the, of the, with the promoting team to see if they actually do have this attitude we believe they have on the conversations. Okay, but as I tell you, sometimes CEOs are very good actors as well. Cut it. That doesn't mean liars. 
Yeah, absolutely. That Sometimes they are concerned about what they are saying. And, yeah. and, and I, I was not only talking about the founders or the CEOs themselves, but I was even talking about having the founders or the CEO uh, building their own leadership teams. I mean, you have a VP of sales, which is quite good at scaling companies from five to 10, but clearly has not the playbook and the experience to go from 10 to 20. And even they might not be interested to specialize themselves on going from 10 to 20. They are experts on moving from five to 10 and they want to be in the company for 18, 24 months. And that's their role. That's what they are specialized uh, in. That's what they love to do. And they just go from company to company, helping them to accomplish that stage and then passing the, the job to another senior uh, VP of sales. And that, that was also the, um, the part where I think that's the, the comments also relate here uh, to what you just said. I don't think it's really a, a measure about the, the, the revenues of the company because there are some 10 million euro revenue company a year that have 12, 15 employees, video game industry, for example. So it hasn't changed really when you had uh, 500,000 euro revenue, it's still the same structure of the business. Even it's if the headcount. I think it's more related to the headcount and the inability of some very product-focused CEOs, founders, to manage a growing team and to be able to listen to the uh, little problems or big problems or personal problems or ambitions that and he's not a, a, a man's person. I mean, it doesn't mean that he's a, a bad person. It means I, I'm an engineer and I like to be in front of my dad. And I don't like to get into inside the skin of another person to try to understand him and to motivate him. And he's not good at that. And before we were 10 people just like me and we had the same hobbies. and So it was easy. But now we have human resources, we have financial department, we have a business developer and I don't understand it, people. So if you are able to recognize that, you are able to uh, begin with the solution, which is taking other managers that are better than you at the areas that you need to develop in your company. But I think it's more related to the headcount than to, the, to, the to what you like to do as well, what you're able to do well, but what you like to do as well. Because if you get burnt out after taking a company from zero to five million revenue, Very good it takes point. a lot of energy. And if from that moment onwards, you start doing 80% of the time things that you don't like doing, you may get burned out because you've already put a lot of six, seven years energy into this company. And now you're doing something you don't like. And I'm still not rich. And I still have pressure for my VCs. I'm still a fuck it. Sorry for my French, but, <laughs> but you need to be careful. I think you really need to be careful about the emotions. And emotions is a particular of the people, not of the product or of the market. And when you have a lot of people, that means a lot of new emotions coming into the company. So you need to be able to manage that. Are you able to manage that? No, you need to take some money, some people in. Got it. Very, very good points uh, about the emotional side. And you gave also some examples of um, what you need to do in order to support the founders to kind of help them to see the reality, uh, mediating conflicts uh, within the founding team. It's really a very important topic that uh, very few people 
talk about uh, openly. And moving forward to the Rockefeller habit number two, which is uh, kind of assuring that we are focused in the next big thing for the next quarter. Uh, this is very related with, with focus. And there is always, uh, especially in B2B, um, an example that I gave, the majority of the companies that I know that were very successful start with a very specific vertical and with very specific uh, geos. So they are not trying to cover, even if the time is huge and that's what we want, they are not trying to execute uh, in every single vertical, in every single geo um, at the same time. But sometimes they convince the future with the next step to get closer to the big area of issues goal. So the future, the, the vision, and with what we need to get done in the next quarter, in the next year, in the next three years to get closer to, to that future. So sometimes it's really thinking, or they think that sometimes it's a, a it's thinking long-term or short-term, and we need to kind of take decisions for the short, the mid, and the long-term. And this is very difficult and very confusing. Um, so did you have any, any kind of, any situations as, as investor where it was very difficult to help your portfolio or your teams to really take a decision, a strategic decision about what vertical to focus on, what she is, and really not trying to do, avoiding to do too much? By default, we try to put these kind of decisions in the heart of the of the founders. I mean, Got it. we are not industry experts, uh, so we can help a lot with the financial strategy. And once you have the product era and a particular commercial strategy, to open the doors that you may need to be able to deploy this commercial strategy and help you with that. Got it. But uh, for a new vertical or whatever, whatever the founding team says, for us it's okay, how can we support you in arriving to that goal that you have decided? We're not going to be deciding for them, that's for sure. For example, we had, uh, I, I think you know that company, Reclamador. Sí. It's quite successful yes. company Sorry, here in Spain. Spanish, it's portfolio, yeah. and we've been there with them since 2013 as well. So in 2014 or 15, I don't remember, there was a big decision to take, which was at that moment they only were claiming for uh, air, uh, air airlines um, yeah. delay, flight delays, and overbooking and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the big decision was let's go towards all Europe and compete with the big uh, British and uh, Dutch uh, companies that do exactly this for all Europe in airline claiming, or let's stay in Spain and start claiming not only for airlines, but also for um, uh, banks, for uh, insurance, for uh, mobile phone companies, and make a brand here in Spain. The second decision was taken, and I had my own opinions. But I try to, to shut myself, which sometimes is difficult because these were just opinions. They were not, you know, based on any uh, empirical data or whatever. And I think if you invest in a founder, you need to um, believe in their instinct. That's what they, I mean, obviously, if their instinct is uh, at the time of your entry, at least backed by the numbers and everything, yeah? But if there's a change, a pivot to make, um, 
I think you should, in most occasions, uh, each company is difficult to make like average or, you know, uh, this is the way you should behave. Each company is a wall, I repeat, but we try not to take into strategic decisions apart from the financing and uh, sometimes the commercial channels and uh, commercialization formula, but not the product or not which markets or not. We just try to help opening doors with the right um, discourse or uh, the right message for clients and for investors or the companies investing. Got it. Um, yeah, and our time is, uh, the show is coming to, to an end. We have almost uh, five minutes uh, before you also uh, go to your next um, appointment. Um, that's, I think that's given that you are not very hands-on um, in your investment style and the way you support your um, portfolio. We are actually quite hands-on, hands -on in, in the areas that we can help. Help, got it. And sometimes when some companies that we invest in do not need our help at all, even in this area, because they are well provided and well. Got it. So we are flexible in our hands-on approach. Got it. But Got most it. is emotional, commercial, and financial. Got it. Thanks for correcting me. So you, you tend to not uh, take decisions or impose. Interfere. Interfere. Got it. Uh, that's that's the, the right thing to say. Um, and in, in terms of go a little bit more to B2B uh, SaaS, uh, there is this SaaS napkin um, blog post from Christoph Jens, which is a partner of uh, 0.9 Capital in, in Berlin. And it talks about going from, for instance, from Series A to Series B and still showing a 3x or 2.5x um, of year-on-year -year growth in terms of ARR and uh, MR, MRR. So sometimes there is this a lot of pressure on the founders to keep tripling uh, their revenues year after year to them to stay appealing for the next funding round. Um, and to be able, again, to choose the best investors to work with them, which again, as we were discussing, will support them even more, having the right warm interest, providing the best emotional support, having the experience how to scale the companies in, in another stages, which in principle will increase the probabilities of the company to be uh, successful. And that's why we want the, the, the best. So do, do you agree with this kind of rate or do you think that... Um, this is flexible and it depends on the history of uh, each company. Yeah, I really believe the second part. I think each company, third time, it's a wall in itself. Some companies, if you push uh, too aggressive, too hard, they're not ready to, for these new markets, for this, uh, you may break them. They, you've, you're pushing them to invest all of your money into uh, acquisition channels when what they need is new organization, a new team, and they are disordered. But I'm, I'm a VC, I'm in a hurry, and you need to grow quickly for me to make a good IRR. Yeah. And we've seen some examples of companies going bust because of that, and they need, need not go bust, they just need more time. More time. Some companies is does the contrary. Some people need a constant challenge to, you know, uh, exceed themselves, exceed themselves and stuff. And uh, it's good for them. I and mean, 
and it depends also on the business model and the market uh, timing and the presence of the company as well. So uh, I think you should take it company by company, but I know too much pressure can break the code. Got it. Got it. Between the company and the reality. And the reality is a number of clients are buying the products of the company and these uh, sales are bigger than the cost. If you're not doing that, you're not a company. You're a company wannabe. You're under equilibrium and you need to go through break even to be a sustainable company. If you're all the, your life playing the VC game, uh, chances are high that you'll end up uh, crying. Very good point. And uh, yeah, final question of, of the show, which is if you would have the opportunity to meet Gonzalo in 2011 when he started Faraday, so what advice would you tell him? Uh... That's a good question. <laughs> uh, go a bit more to the gym, try to eat a bit more healthy, try to take a bit more time with your friends and family, and uh, that's it. Well done. That's a very good point and very well related with what you shared before about the way you support your portfolio. So Gonzalo, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And to our community, thank you so much for tuning in and for listening to us. You know that you can uh, join us uh, every week and listen to the best tech leaders uh, on what are the key lessons to scale up your business. And you can tune in via SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, or at scaleupvalley.com slash community. And just uh, listen in the way that is more convenient to you. So thank you so much. And have a great evening ahead or day if you are in, in the US. See you soon. Thank you. Hello, Mike. See you. Bye.